Welcome to the Deptford Cinema Podcast. Bienvenido al podcast del Deptford Cinema. Deptford Cinema, the right place for film lovers. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Deptford Cinema Podcast. My name is Chris Moffat, and I'm serving as a guest host today to mark a collaboration between the cinema and the South Asia Forum at Queen Mary University of London, where I'm a lecturer in history. I think it's quite exciting to draw this connection between Southeast and East London, between Deptford and Mile End, where Queen Mary is located, and hope this might be the first of many such collaborations. I'm joined by Pragya Dital, who is a volunteer at the cinema and also a colleague at Queen Mary, where she is a postdoctoral fellow in the School of English and Drama. So hello, Pragya. Hi. We are both especially excited to welcome Sanjay Kak, whose 2013 film Red Ant Dream is being screened on the Deptford Cinema website. Sanjay is one of the most extraordinary documentary filmmakers of his generation, if you won't mind me saying, uh, and in India has been central to a broader network of filmmakers, cinematographers, and editors that have emerged, uh, I guess, since the 1980s, and really, I think, transformed the practice, uh, especially its relationship with politics and political activism. And today we're going to talk about Red Ant Dream, which Sanjay has kindly agreed to screen uh, in part as a gesture of solidarity with Deptford Cinema as a volunteer-run community cinema, the obstacles it is currently facing in these pandemic times. And so we're hugely grateful to him for that. So Sanjay, it's a real uh, pleasure to have you here. Thank you, Chris. Thank you, Pragya. Delighted to be here. So Sanjay and I first uh, met, I think, in 2013 when he was in the UK to uh, physically, um, rather than in New Delhi, where he is now, uh, to screen the film. And actually, part of what I want to open with is this space between those two moments, so which in recent Indian politics feels in some ways like 100 years, in other ways perhaps not so different. Um, Red Ant Dream is interested broadly in questions of insurgency and security, in contemporary India, and it follows a variety of struggles from Maoist guerrillas in Chhattisgarh to local protests against the devastation of industrial mining activities in Orisha to the activities of leftist organizations in Punjab. The documentary is inaugurated by a quote from the Indian revolutionary Bhagat Singh, who was executed by British colonial authorities in 1931 for conspiring to wage war against the King Emperor. He, in league with his comrades in the Hindustan Socialist Republican Association, had assassinated a police officer in Lahore and thrown a bomb into the Legislative Assembly in New Delhi. Early in 1931, he writes a letter to the governor of Punjab demanding to be shot by firing squad as a prisoner of war, rather than hanged, as he eventually was, as a common criminal. He notes in his letter, let us declare that the state of war does exist and shall exist. The choice of the course, whether bloody or comparatively peaceful, which it should adopt, rests with you. Choose whichever you like, but that war shall be incessantly waged. So using this quote written nearly 90 years ago by an anti-colonial revolutionary in a letter to a British colonial governor to frame a documentary about India's 21st century uh, is, I think, really important. And it encapsulates a key concern of the film, which is really, I think, the explosive potential of certain histories, the way they force us to see the present differently. 
But in thinking about this distance between the time you made the film, Sanjay, in the years before 2013, and the moment we, sh we are now watching it via Deptford Cinema in late 2020, I keep coming back to that notion of a state of war. And many of us have watched the transformations that have occurred in India since Narendra Modi was elected prime minister in 2014 uh, with anger and trepidation. And it seems to me in some ways that the state of war has given way to a state of siege in which opposition voices are being metaphorically and sometimes literally starved out while right-wing forces seem to have more than enough time to, to wait them out. Right? Um, but then again, there are always glimmers of hope. And Sanjay and I met again this past February um, when mass protests against new citizenship legislation had resulted in festivals of dissent across the country, most uh, notably at Shaheen Bagh in Delhi, um, though these were put to a swift end by COVID. And today, as we speak, tens of thousands of farmers from Haryana and Punjab, a state with a rich tradition of resistance, as Sanjay makes clear in the film, have set up protest camps on highways leading to the capital to protest Modi's agricultural policies, among other things. And one of the messages of the film is perhaps to hold on to those individual moments, join them with others, and see them as part of a broader unfolding process. So I wanted to ask Sanjay if you could maybe say a little bit about why you were drawn to make this film in the years leading up to 2013, and then perhaps reflect on the experience of watching it today. How much is the present just a stage for this kind of longer uh, unfolding of, of histories of Indian resistance, or are we seeing something different? Thank you, Chris. Um, you know, the film actually began um, as a kind of response to something that had uh, preoccupied me for quite some time, which was um, wherever one traveled in India, um, frequently you encountered people who saw themselves as keeping alive a kind of revolutionary ideal. You know? And um, this in areas where, for example, uh, a, you know, the communist upsurge had been beaten down very violently, such as in Punjab, or um, in Orissa, where it, it never was a kind of uh, predominantly a left upsurge, but a more a kind of uh, complicated Swadeshi indigenous kind of movement. But somehow this, uh, uh, the only way one could describe it is this kind of revolutionary ideal, you know, which uh, felt, and all of them took uh, inspiration from Bhagat Singh, you know, and that was very interesting for me. So in a sense, the figure of Bhagat Singh, which your own work, uh, Chris, does uh, quite a lot to excavate, um, you know, there was something about it, it ideally should have been an examination of Bhagat Singh, you know, uh, but it began with Bhagat Singh and this fact of, so the question really was, who is a revolutionary in India in 2010 or whenever we began work on the film, you know, and who has the courage to call herself or himself one, you know? Can any of us now uh, think of anything that we do as revolutionary, you know? So that was the place where we began. And um, very obviously, Bastar was one of the locations because we were seeing a full-blown Maoist insurgency there, you know, which despite everything that the Indian state was doing, uh, they had been unable to quell it. And I'm talking about 2010. And 10 years later, 
nothing has changed. You know, uh, the Indian uh, sort of state and the, its security forces may have made some incursions in some areas, but they've been beaten back in others. Every month, the newspapers have details of one or the other. Either it's the CRPF, the paramilitary CRPF who are ambushed, or it's so-called Maoist guerrillas who are killed. So, I mean, nothing has changed in this decade. So that was one of the, the sort of locales of the film. Orissa was equally interesting for me because it was a very, very uh, vibrant uh, movement in the Niamgiri Hills. Um, but they, they took inspiration from Bhagat Singh, but they didn't belong uh, in, in any conventional way to a kind of... So it was a kind of non-left revolutionary movement, which I found very interesting. And therefore, its ability to, for example, deal with issues of cultural indigeneity and so on were considerably more nuanced, you know, as perhaps the film also makes evident in, in terms of how the struggle there is played out, uh, particularly in the Niamgiri hills. Punjab was a, 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 an odd place because in people's imagination, Punjab is a place which is kind of the poster child of modern capitalistic agriculture. Whatever little challenge the, uh, the Naxal movement posed to uh, this model of uh, governance had been vanquished, you know, 25 years ago or 20 years ago. Um, so it seemed like an odd place to return to. But And I actually returned there chasing the poetry of a revolutionary poet, which is Avtar Singh Pash, whose work also uh, figures uh, in the film. And I remember I was in Amritsar speaking to a friend who, who's a professor of uh, literature in the university there. And I said to him, I said, what remains of the revolutionary left in Punjab, of which Punjab had a great history. And without missing a beat, he said to me, he said, poetry and culture. Our poetry and culture are completely imbued with that impact of the revolutionary left. And I think for me, that was the reason to draw Punjab into the story. How is it that when in practical or pragmatic terms, a, a particular politics is um, completely uh, apparently destroyed, but it survives because of its penetration into culture and music and theater and, and is kept alive. And in that sense, uh, in the part of Red Hand Dream that deals with Punjab, for me, uh, it's a recognition of the fact that the revolutionary ideal survives the most impossible conditions. I was just thinking to myself this morning, unconnected to our conversation today, that whatever we are seeing in India today, however um, dark it might appear, out there, there are hundreds and thousands of people who are committed to fighting back for their rights. And that remains unchanged for over a century, you know. And it's not, I'm not now bringing together all kind of disparate um, sort of groups. I'm saying that there is a, there's a consistency in that as well, you know. And um, 
So in that sense, um, between the time that I finished the film in 2013 and today, um, uh, you know, nothing has changed. Everything has changed. <laughs> um, but the times are becoming more and more interesting, no doubt about that. Thank you, Sanjay. Yeah, and I think that that really comes through in the film with this very kind of explicit strategy of juxtaposition, but also a sense that it is there is a kind of shared struggle binding these different contexts. I don't know if you wanted to say a little bit about um, what is happening in Delhi today in terms of the farmers and how that links to to what what that film teaches and what the film can continue to teach us today. So um, for the last five days now, um, hundreds of thousands of farmers, most of them from the Punjab, have arrived in every mode of public transport known to man, uh, which includes buses, trucks, cars, motorcycles, and a friend reported seeing a combined harvester in that line of trucks which are lined up outside Delhi. So it's quite a fascinating uh, kind of convoy of vehicles. Um, they're parked there in a very disciplined matter, manner. Um, uh, in the first few days, there were some sort of skirmishes with the police, but I think the police have also backed off. And it's kind of, they kind of announced a siege. You know, it's a kind of partial siege right now. And the numbers are growing. Um, although, uh, you know, the, the, the mainstream or what we call the corporate media in India is trying its best to ignore it, as they do very often. Uh, but uh, farmers from other parts of the country have also started trickling in. And it seems that what we might be seeing, uh, not unlike what, uh, what you witnessed when you were here in February uh, last year, which was uh, Shaheen Bagh. Um, sorry, February this year. It, it all seems like a blur now. <laughs> um, uh, where a kind of significant challenge was being posed to the authoritarian nature of the current Indian state. Uh, so I think this one has a considerably, I think, more significance because, um, you know, the category of farmers is a pretty universal one. And once it gets ignited, it's like the category of students, you know. Once students get inflamed, then you've got a problem on your hands. So, uh, I think that this government is backing off currently. It hasn't rescinded the laws and it's not easy to see how they'll do that because um, that's not the way the BJP functions. You know, they don't back off, uh, but looks like they might have to. And so it's, it's, that's the, it's a standoff right now, uh, even as we speak. Um, for me, you know, the fact that it comes from the challenge of this nature and scale comes from the Punjab is kind of reassuring because it's precisely that what took me to Punjab. And I know that the, the ground that the film traverses, and they might just seem like some odd anniversary around Bhagat Singh or some little rally here or something there, Eventually, it's those little things, those forms of um, kind of mobilization, of informing people. I mean, one of the fantastic things about the protesters outside Delhi is that every time everybody points a camera towards people in the audience, people are so articulate. 
their understanding of the nature of the state, the nature of the corporate media. You know, it's, this is not an uninformed audience. And I have to say that that is the contribution of the left. You know, that kind of rigorous uh, examination of the issues and of sending it down the line, you know, so that the people who show up also know why they are there, you know. So I think for me, um, uh, I, I see, I see that that what what brings these farmers to the doorstep of Delhi is the same revolutionary ideal that the Red Ant Dream uh, sought to um, examine or travel within or investigate. Absolutely, thank you, Sanjay. Okay. Um... Broadening the discussion out a bit, I was wondering, um, watching the film, um, I was reminded of um, different genres of films coming from different contexts, and I was um, wondering how much you had them in mind when you were making Red Ant Dream. Um, I was thinking specifically of the war film, kind of ethnographic film, those kind of film and photographic depictions of so-called tribal communities, especially the scenes in uh, Chhattisgarh and Odisha, um, which are conducted in a spirit of salvage ethnography. Um, and I know you have a background in anthropology as well. That's uh, what you um, initially studied. And also films about countries in revolutionary turmoil and other um, contexts. So I'm thinking particularly of Guzman's the, the Battle of Chile, which was screened at Depth of Cinema earlier this year. That's kind of, um, and um, was there a particular film that inspired you or aspects of those films that you uh, wanted to, um, you know, actively seeking to avoid or emulate? Because... Uh, um, thinking of it in a context wider than India at the... Uh, thank you for uh, seeing all that uh, in the film. The thing is that um, I, I have an, uh, two advantages, which is that I grew up at a time when we didn't have access to the cinema of the world uh, because I grew up uh, and I went to university, you know, pre-VHS tape, you know. Uh, so uh, growing up in Delhi... Uh, so I'm quite remarkably unlettered, even with the documentary film. You know, like I now end up seeing Guzman, you know, like when, I'm, when I was 50, probably I saw my first Guzman film. So I think there is some advantages to that because I think that I, um, you know, I think that sometimes um, sort of being left to your own devices, you have to find a language which is appropriate to your argument. So for, for me, um, yes, the uh, business of, and I'm glad that you say, you know, I, I don't know exactly the phrase you use, but the kind of, you know, almost these little snippets of ethnography, you know, that's exactly the way without having a, a very worked out reason to do it. That's exactly the way we, I approached it because those are moments of insight uh, of the kind that ethnographic film can provide. But I don't want to get stuck within that genre. You know? So quickly you move on to something else, which you might think of as, say, a war film. You know? So uh, I think that not out of some great sort of intellectual purpose, but just by instinct, I am not a great respecter of form. And therefore, 
uh, it runs the risk perhaps of being clumsy, but I'm okay with that. You know, I'm okay with not. Uh, one very important thing for me is not to fulfill people's expectations. Just when they think this is going to be a film about Maoist gorillas, I'm saying, no, it's not about Maoist gorillas. It's also about Orissa. And now you make that connection because I'm not even going to tell you exactly why they're connected. You know, so in that sense, it's a mix. So the fact that we use, we use voiceover, we use subtitled interviews, we use quotations, we use informational text sometimes, you know? So, I mean, by any sort of canons of how, um, you know, documentary films ought to be made, it's like, it's just crisscrossing across genres big time, you know? Um, but it's not, it's not, it might be done in innocence, but it's not done carelessly, you know? It's that, when do you want to push what kind of button? And then what happens is, uh, you know, because genre, sometimes a, 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 a purity of genre also becomes very comforting. Oh, I'm going to, I'm watching that kind of film. You know, and so, you know, it carries you within. But what if the film kept keeps dropping you, you know, every now and then and shakes up your comfort level? So it's something that one has been experimenting with and, you know, uh, some of you might have seen my earlier film in Kashmir, which is called Jashni Azadi, which where we tried to do something very similar, you know. Um, and I just feel that um, I think that in some senses, uh, Red Ant Dream formally tries to do the same thing, um, uh, which is to, uh, to both beguile, because you draw the audience in, but you don't let them get too comfortable. And so the the mixing of genres is very much part of what I think is needed. Yeah, yeah that felt like a real contrast from, say, documentary films you see on British television where you're gently led by the hand <laughs> through a narrative, everything is explained to you. You know, uh, you have lots of editorialising, a very obtrusive kind of voiceover. So that was quite refreshing. Um, but um, I was wondering elsewhere, you know, where um, sometimes I was missing maybe the larger political context. I was thinking in particular with the uh, section in Chhattisgarh, uh, you have scenes of um, uh, violence committed by the Sadwal Judam, which is this kind of government-backed militia that was um, uh, involved in uh, sort of rampages against Maoists um, in the forest of Bastar. And there had been this 2011 Supreme Court judgment that um, you know it was an unconstitutional body. Um, this was within the time frame that the film was made, and I was wondering, would it have been like Pat to have introduced that and then had this kind of false sense of a happy ending when there really was no happy ending to this particular account? I was wondering why you didn't bring in that wider political context there. And it seemed germane to the discussion of constitutions. Uh, yeah. Yeah, I think your your question sort of answers it, which is that uh, in a sense. As we know, the Supreme Court judgment, all it did was that it got the uh, Salwar Judum cadres a slightly better wage because now they were no more uh, wearing their, uh, you know, what we call home clothes. And now they had to be given a uniform and a few thousand rupees more and they were now called auxiliary forces or something like that. Um, um, so the, 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 the state always finds ways in which 
that kind of, uh, uh, you know, divisive, corrosive, diabolic uh, uh, sort of challenge is created from within. They've done it in Nagaland, they've done it in Manipur, they've done it in Kashmir, and they've done it in Bastar, you know. Um, so I think that, uh, you know, in a sense, it, it, it connects to my previous comment, which is that um, the film actually um, doesn't very often root itself in fact. It chooses instead to kind of float a little bit over all those things. So the kind of fact that you mentioned would have, you know, would have needed me to drop anchor. And that's not the way the argument in the film is developing. So I'd much rather walk you into the middle of a Salvajudum rally and hear what is being said and just be shocked and then move on, you know? So that it's, a, uh, you know, in, in a sense that if you, if, you, if you drop anchor, then that becomes a style. Then you have to keep dropping anchor in different places and letting people settle down. But you want to keep people a little bit, um, how should I say, destabilized all the time. And that would have been probably the reason why we did what we did. Thanks, Sanjay. Um, you know, just on that point of view, bringing the viewer into a rally and kind of leaving them there, I was thinking about how one of the sort of enduring concerns of, of your camera in this film um, is this sort of technology of amplification that we see from rallies and, and, and meetings and so speakers or microphones, megaphones, radios. Um, and in many ways, I think that, you know, thinking with that, I, I began to think about the film itself as a technology of amplification, as a way to amplify struggles, overlooked histories. And so I think it might be interesting, especially for some of the podcast um, uh, listeners who are maybe unfamiliar with uh, independent documentary filmmaking in India to, to you, for you to say a little bit about, you know, how in your career you have looked at questions of distribution, of, you know, engaging viewers, um, the challenges you faced. Obviously, we're in a digital age, which makes it possible for us to screen one of your films very easily online. Um, but if you could maybe talk about that challenge of amplification in relation to uh, film audiences in India? I think the, um, what you said at the beginning of, of your question, which is that the film is very much engaged with uh, ideas of amplification, and both literally and figuratively. And so um, from Bhagat Singh to the poetry of Pash, you know, um, the idea is that, you know, how in these, how in, let's say, sustaining the revolutionary ideal, how does, what is the media at play? It could be a young uh, Maoist soldier with a, uh, you know, tiny little handheld tape recorder bought for a few hundred rupees, holding it up during a, a stage performance at Bhumkal. But that is going to be played back, you know. And that is going to amplify that experience of being there and so on and so forth, you know. So in th that sense, yes, the film, um, not in a very, um, not perhaps in a very well thought out way, but simply because that is the ground, 
you know, the telling of stories, the connecting of older struggles like in uh, Bastar to the current struggle in Punjab, you know, a hearkening back to a kind of revolutionary past. So I think that, um, I think that uh, uh, the documentary film in India, which now has a very, um, how shall I say, rich and textured body of work, where a, a, a kind of activist political film is only one strand. You know, there are all kinds of cinema, and that's what's so wonderful about it. But certainly, I think that uh, in its um, formative years, um, and maybe when I started filmmaking, it had just about gotten going. Um, I think that the idea that our films were being going to be made uh, about people and they were also going to be screened amidst them and elsewhere as well. You know, so it, it's, it's, it's quite unlike the kind of film that uh, you know, Pragya was referring to, which has a kind of smooth narrative that comes from the outside, you know, in that sense. Uh, I'm not saying that we were making films for the movements or the social processes that we were filming, but I think we all felt that we were also responsible to them, you know, uh, in, in some senses. And that our audiences came from within that field. So, Yes, uh, I, I could come down to Cambridge and do a screening there, but my first screenings would have to be elsewhere and the film would have to make meaning in multiple contexts, you know? So in that sense, it was not, I think the filmmaking um, practice was not, um, not necessarily born of cinema alone, but out of a very close connection with society and social movements and so on. And that has vigorously shaped our practice. Um, like Chris, I was kind of interested in your use of different types of media, following on from that question. Radio, Maoist found footage, um, and these interviews with Maoist leaders. And also the kind of focus on technology of recording and filming in the film. So um, there's footage of speakers, voice recorders, and even one shot of a woman um, filming a revolutionary performance with her camera phone. And I was wondering um, how you might approach making a film on this theme now in the current political climate and also using the technology that's available where there's been this kind of you know, explosion of social media and camera phones in India because of very um, cheap and fast internet access across a huge swathes of the country. Um, and also, at, you know, it, it's in one hand produces kind of citizen media, but it also played an instrumental role in say the communal violence that occurred in Delhi in February this, um, this past year. It's been very important uh, for communal forces as well, the use of WhatsApp in the elections, the pre previous two elections and uh, the communal violence that led up to the 2014 elections in particular. And I was wondering how you would approach this theme now. So I think that, um, uh, you know, I think that the right wing using precisely the same tools that we think are generally our arsenal. I think this is not a new thing. I think the, in India from the 90s, uh, the forces of Hindutva have deployed technology. Uh, today, they might be using Twitter and WhatsApp. Earlier, they were using VHS tapes and video vans to, to push their point of view. So in that sense, I don't think there's a difference. But... You know, what happened in Delhi uh, uh, 
it's something, it, it made me think about something, which is that a lot of young people were going out uh, shooting for maybe a day, sometimes just an incident, sometimes over two days, quickly editing it and putting it out. And they were incredibly useful pieces of video, you know, two minutes long, five minutes long, six minutes long. And I said to myself, I said, is there any point in making a documentary anymore of the kind that one has been doing? Because the story's out, you know, in the absence of mainstream media is not going to cover it. But these young people are putting it out. You know, every few days I see another one and it might not be made very uh, in a very sophisticated way, but it works. But I think that's a year down the line or some months down the line, I am more than ever convinced that it's not just being there that makes the documentary film what it is. You know, why is it that in the 90s and in the, you know, the years that followed, why is it that the same footage when shown on television is acceptable but becomes highly problematic to the state in a documentary? It's because there's a thought behind it. There's a way of presenting it, you know. So uh, cinema verite is not simply about being in the right place at the right time and shooting it, you know. It's also a consideration of what is verite, you know. And I think that, I mean, I haven't made a film in a while and I don't know when I'll do it next, but I'm totally convinced that the long-form essay film, um, it has its place. I mean, I find it incredible that, uh, and, and I'm sorry to end on a sort of self-aggrandizing note, but, you know, my film uh, in Kashmir, I mean, like it's 17 years old, but, you know, it keeps getting screened. Everything seems to have changed, you know. We're, we're talking about Red Ant Dream seven years after it was made, you know. So, it's because the particular juxtaposition of ideas and the formulations, they must have a weight. Otherwise, they're, they're not the documentary that we're talking about. Otherwise, it's just news or it's news documentary or, or whatever it is. So I'm hopeful. I'm hopeful for the form. I think that's a wonderful note to end on. And uh, Sanjay, thank you so much um, for your generous um, way of thinking, for your for your uh, filmmaking and for kind of guiding us through this. Um, for listeners of the podcast, I think we will um, have on the link some further readings if people are interested in this. We might also ask Sanjay to recommend uh, a few things that um, he could share about for those interested in Indian documentary film or indeed documentary photography. Um, so thank you, Pragya, for your questions. Thank you again, Sanjay, for your time. And to our listeners, please do watch the film, support Deptford Cinema. Uh, and if you would like to know more about the South Asia Forum at Queen Mary, please follow us on Twitter at QMSAF, or you can visit southasia.qmul.ac.uk. And I'll put all those links uh, on the podcast site. Thank you for listening. Thank you for listening to the Deptford Cinema podcast. For more information about our current online activities, please visit our website, www.deptfordcinema.org. Deptford Cinema. Deptford Cinema, the right place for film lovers.